it is a tool that has so much automation in it. It actually has an incident responder capability. It helps us reducing our analyst headcount. I'm not saying I'm reducing headcount, but I'm saying I'm saving time. We could do so much more with automation if we have tools that help us automate things. And that's the right automation I'm looking at. From Exabeam, this is the new CISO, a show about the people who lead IT security teams, the challenges they face, and how they overcome them. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to hear our new episodes first. I'm Steve Moore, and today I speak with Peter Fruchtenicht, National Manager of Security and Compliance and CISO at NEC Australia. Peter's a technician by nature, with experience across decades and countries. Now he oversees security within NEC and their managed services. He joins us to cover his perspective on time-saving security tools, global threats, and the complexities of AI. Both the cybersecurity industry and the attackers we fight are evolving rapidly. So why is automation a key component of security tools? What dangers and benefits may AI pose for defenders? And how is the threat landscape changing in Australia and globally? Okay, Peter, thank you so much for being here. If you would, for the uninitiated, who are you and what do you do? Thank you, Steve, for having me on the show. Yeah, I'm Peter Frechtenich. I work for a company called NEC Australia. NEC Australia is a global organization, but has presence in about 169 countries, and we're just one of them. So my role is I'm the national manager for security and compliance, and I also act in the CISO role for NEC. Awesome. So 169 countries. And yeah, I saw your title, yeah, National Manager, Security and Compliance, and CISO. You didn't start your career at NEC. Where did you begin? How did you start on your technical journey? Oh, that's many moons ago, about 27 years, if I'm correct. In 96, I started off as a systems engineer. And that was back overseas in South Africa. As you can imagine, I've got a, I've got a different accent, although I'm in Australia now. Yeah, I've been working for a, a defense company and supporting PC systems. But I've always been part of an integrator group and service provider, managed services, and worked my way up through organizations and remain as long as I can until I've actually felt this is the time to move on. And so I've moved progress to NEC and I've been at NEC for the last nine years, close to nine years in the next month. Well, so I was looking at your sort of your LinkedIn version of your CV, and that's one thing. For most of your positions, you've stayed quite a long while, right? And that's and I'm I'm a little the same way. I started working in technology in about two thousand, but our sort of our resume is similar in that is where you know, I've had a lot of places where it was you know, six years, seven years, eight years, nine years, which is a little bit rare. That's at least in the States. I don't know if it's the same in, in South Africa or in Australia, but were you the norm or, or was it abnormal to stay that long? Well, there's two things. Normally, if you want to progress in career, then it's when salary, it's probably a good idea to stay a couple of years and then jump very quick often. 
And that's the easiest way to get salary increases. But I believe I'm a bit loyal. So if my company employ me, I do have an obligation to return value. And value probably only get after about 18 months really in an employee. Six months if it's a really good employee, but 18 months and longer sometimes for some people. But in my case, I prefer to remain with the organization until I feel I've left my welcome, basically. Yeah, I would say in the States here, and I felt like I was a strange one because I stayed, as I mentioned, but in many cases, it's not uncommon to leave, funny enough, after about 18 months or so or a year, you know, sometimes two years to jump to get more money. And even more interesting, on average, I don't know how scientific this is, but the average role of the CISO is about a year and a half, two years in the States here. Yeah, it is a very short-lived role and it's global. I've seen it. It is a new role. It is not a old role. It's only been part of the C-suite. It's been there for a while, but really catching up in the last five years, maybe. In Well, and I'm, I'm referring to Australia specifically. Yeah. Talk to us about that. So it's you've been in IT almost 25 years. You're in Australia. You're saying in the last five years. So if we were to go back, if you and I both moved to Australia 10 years ago, Hearing the title CISO, would you say, is would be a little bit rare 10 years ago, let's say? Definitely. Look, if you would search Seek or LinkedIn at the time, you'd probably find maybe one a month or not even a month in ads for CISO. And even security roles wouldn't have been that common either. So I think security, let's call it 14 years ago, was a very rare item and it would not be a very common role nor were they really uni courses that focuses on security. And these days, every single uni has cyber courses, and you even get courses these days for sizes. So things have progressed, definitely. Yeah, I mean, we've done Deakin University, I know, has quite a, uh, I had good conversations with the folks there. And in fact, I need to reach back out to some of them. But it seems to be a very strong security culture now. But I'm kind of surprised to hear that there wasn't seemingly wasn't many people in that role, you know, 10 years ago. I mean, that obviously has changed because NEC certainly is providing services and solutions around that. So there's a need for it, right? And it's otherwise there wouldn't be business to do it if there wasn't, you know, security people sort of needing the help. But I find it fascinating. Why do you think seemingly, and I I don't live in Australia, I don't want to put words in anyone's mouth, but why does it seemingly a little behind? Because 10 years ago, 20 years ago, it was very common. Every company had a CISO here. Why did it take a little longer, maybe, for security to catch on in Australia? What's your opinion on that? Well, I think Australia has a population of about 25, 27 million people. So it's really not as big as the states are. The states sitting at a quarter million plus. And I think you've got more organizations, bigger organizations in the States and Australia. Look, Australia is not that far behind in technology. I think it is more around the sizing of organizations as well. Having a size of an organization that's just 20 people in size or 50 people or 100 people, sometimes it's not worth it. You'll have a security manager, you'll have a senior engineer and a couple of engineers or analysts. And I believe that's how it is. So, and that's how it's been for that period. I mean, 14 years ago, when I came to Australia, I worked for a company called Dimension Dot, a great company, and they've um, employed me as a technical consultant. 
And soon after that, I stepped into management and started recruiting. And it is really, really hard to fill roles to get the right person and even people applying at the time because there wasn't many people. And you'd probably take someone from a network background or from a programming background or even a student that studied IT in some form and train them. As long as they've got a willing attitude, you could do quite a bit with someone. And then even higher senior managers, that was impossible to get at the time because either people would hold on to their roles or there wasn't just that many. It is tough to have this sort of origin story of where does everybody, if there's not the staff, you know, how do you build it? How do you build that momentum? You know, the number of people at all levels to sort of do the work. It's funny, you know, now I feel like that Australia is incredibly in tune, not only with security, but also the role that cybersecurity plays. Just recently, the Australian Security Intelligence Organization, they do a, an annual threat assessment, which I'm sure you're very well aware of. They said that espionage, cyber espionage is Australia's biggest threat, which plays heavily into kind of the role of, of the CISO because it's something that gets often achieved via technical means, right? The success of much of espionage that occurs is, is technical in nature. I find that fascinating that that's something that, you know, in my travels to Australia now, I always, I pay attention. I have a, a special sort of Aussie news feed now. So I, I found that interesting that that's Australia's biggest threat. What's your opinion on that? And, and is that something that you have to deal with and have questions about? I mean, it's espionage in particular. It's mostly related to China was what sort of the fear is or the concern. Any thoughts on on that? Are you surprised that that was... That was February 21st is when that news came out. Yeah, definitely. Look, Australia, from a defense perspective, is doing quite a lot of business around submarines, nuclear submarines with the states currently. We're acquiring quite a few of them, and we build up our defense capability. And we're right on the border of China and, the, and some of those eastern countries. And it is always close at heart conversations. And I think that's exactly why the threat of China is so imminent. It's just a relationship with um, the Western countries like America, the five eyes, basically. Right. Correct. Yeah. We, I mean, historically, we've always been fairly tight. And this the submarine deal that you mentioned was actually fairly controversial and made some people fairly upset for a number of reasons, right? But I think that as you see more of this decoupling uh, occurring in with China, there's going to be increased pressure from China and other places on this in terms of espionage, influence, you know, attacks. You know, we saw a kind of high level of activity and then we kind of saw it fall off a bit. But 2014, 2015, 2016, you know, here in the States, it was everything from hotels to airlines to, you know, healthcare to our security clearance groups. All those were sort of hit. And then, but funny enough, most, many of the five eyes were hit as well. And I think we're going to see what well, we are seeing, but we'll continue to see an uptick in that. I like the topic. I think, well, I like the topic for several reasons. Some of it has, has to do with my past, but I'm always keen to know what those, especially the Aussies think of this. Cause you mentioned you're in a, a high activity area uh, geographically, and I think it was going to get a little more busy and cyber is going to be a part of that. Oh, absolutely. We see increasing attacks daily, and especially the customers that we support 
and where we have cyber services with, it's from small, big, doesn't matter who you are, there's consistent threats out there and consistent attacks. And it's just the threat landscape is just increasing. And it's becoming so real and so close that it's actually everyone has gone through some form of exposure already. Let's spend a second on that. So before you went to NEC, you were dimension data, correct? And, and then, so, but at NEC, one of the things we talked about is, you know, you were building these analytic capabilities, these services around the Security Operations Center. Spend a second on because you're, you're CISO now, but you weren't always CISO. You were building not only capabilities that are internal to NEC, but also those that are providing sort of security services for others. And so that is, from a career standpoint, is interesting, sort of the growth of you, right? So you were being doing technical, very technical things, building out solutions and services and capabilities internal, and then moving again into security leadership, you know, CISO level type position. But also all what you've built gives you the ability, you alluded to this now, to see across several other customer organizations in terms of attack trends. So I want to split this into two pieces. You're saying that you see increased activity at a high level. What are the ways you're seeing increased activity, increased attacks? Can you talk a little bit about that in terms of of trends? Because you you are providing sort of SOC services to customers, right? Yeah, absolutely. So what we see is more phishing type of attacks. So that's a predominantly type of attack that we see in most organizations. And even even so, and I do want to say, we've done an internal test. We do regularly internal tests and very, very thorough tests. And if you have only 1% of people clicking on a link, that's actually good. But in most times, in most organizations, what I've seen is even though you have a security awareness program, people would click on links still. So uh, taking that into context of the outside world, why people are still getting attacked. For example, if you walk in the street and you drop a USB key down in the street, how many people will pick it up? It will probably sit there for about two minutes before someone will pick it up and plug it somewhere in an organization, an organizational laptop with, and they have a policy, internal policy that state, no USB keys, uh, private keys plugged in. And you'll find that people will do it. And it's just a natural curiosity. And especially around phishing test, when you do something like sales and there's a bargain, people will always click on links. It's just natural, especially the vulnerable people. And I'm talking about educated, employed people. But when you go and it's in private life, the older vulnerable people, people that are sitting at home, people on holidays, browse a bit, and all of a sudden they get an email link and they click on something. and malware gets installed. And this is the foreign entities that we talked about earlier, trying to gain access to information. And most of it is trying to, the biggest form of, uh, or the outcome of that is this remuneration, financial gain, basically. It's interesting also, uh, and we've not talked about this, I don't even know if you've got an opinion on it, but I'd be curious to know, you know, with the growth of, of AI in general, and even sort of synthesizing voices with just very little input. So what's happening is, and this has actually been successful probably in, in more places than we'd like to admit, where they'll find out an executive or a person in leadership, they'll find a good sample of their voice and generate effectively a catalog of the ability to synthesize voice, and then they'll leave 
voicemail messages to get people to do certain things. Yeah, that's very dangerous. AI has, in the last couple of years, has just shot through the roof. And the purpose of AI has moved from service desk or to answer desk to online help. And for example, chat GPT, there's so many out there. There's a chaos GPT. I don't know if you know about that. That's whole purpose is to destroy human life. Where chat GPT is meant to be helping organizations, helping people. For example, you could write an essay. You know that. You could mimic someone's voice. You could write a program. It is so powerful. It can be used for good, but it is dangerous. And companies should have strict policies in place to restrict the use of something like chat GPT because you can have plagiarism. And that could potentially or use some other company information that you don't know if you want something written, like a bid or proposal or whatever, or detailed design. Or if you upload something in, in chat GPT, you may be in breach of data sovereignty issues. Well, that's an excellent point. Even, you know, what are people entering in? You know, could it be used or, you know, what's the information being used for that's getting sort of pasted into it, right? What is it able to vacuum up? In fact, there's been an organization, I won't say who, that has had to call or declare a, a breach scenario based on the use of, uh, of these platforms. Effectively, people sharing things that they weren't supposed to. So they had, you know, IP theft, you know, as a result of, of this, you know, people sort of utilizing these platforms. I find that pretty interesting that it's sort of a breach scenario because it's been used or they're, they're considering that. Absolutely, especially application development. If you develop a application for critical um, for a company with critical services like power, water, or so, on, and you use ChatGPT, I mean that code sits somewhere. You upload it; it sits somewhere. It is in memory somewhere, and for someone else to use. So you're putting your organization and that organization at risk at that time. What do you think? And again, we haven't talked about this before, but you know, you you kind of mentioned a negative around what we're seeing with AI, at least what we see in the news. But as someone who, who is and was a, a technician and, and has been doing this for a long time, what do you think this still could mean uh, to benefit the defender? You know, you build capabilities, you have to build, you yourself have helped build, you know, security service catalogs and capabilities. You have to stay tuned in to what the market wants and what is needed. And there's lots of different tools and technologies and ideas to help get that job done to protect companies. Where do you see this going? What's your prediction over the next five or 10 years? What does this mean that could be good for the defender? Well, I don't have a crystal ball, but I'll tell you what, in the current status, AI automation is key for us. So from a management perspective, and I've got a team of about 37 security analyst engineers, that services national for our customers, if you could automate anything, it would be very, very helpful to help that engineer or that analyst to move on to something else. For example, the, our XDR tool that we use, and giving you a hint which one we're using, talking to you, it is a tool that has so much automation in it. It actually has that incident responder capability. It helps us reducing our analyst headcount. I'm not saying I'm reducing headcount, but I'm saying I'm saving time. We could do so much more with automation if we have tools that help us automate things. And that's the right automation I'm looking at. ChatGPT is just something else that can help you 
in your personal life can help you write something up or whatever. But using known vendors and especially your XRBM, using an XRBM tool that could help you because XRBM is quite a bit of automation and so does other tools, other vendors. So we partner with, with hundreds of vendors at NEC. And a lot of those vendors do have automation in their tools built, which saves effort and also mistakes and error. You've said a couple of different things. And first off, I appreciate the shout out. One of the things that the listener knows that we, on purpose, we don't discuss our product. You know, this is, I again, appreciate the shout out. We want to keep this as, as vendor neutral and, and as sort of no sort of direction sort of implied. But I, I do think that it is important and the advice you gave of looking into, you know, where does ML, data science, AI, where does it benefit the defender and how should a CISO or a security team think about it? And so I want to split it into two pieces. First question is going to be, you mentioned it's saving time, but also saving errors. That is incredibly important, preventing errors or mis- analytic mistakes or uh, making sure that things are consistent. So I want to ask you, what is that? What should someone look for generically, not a brand of anything, but generically, what should someone look for if they're interested in reducing errors and automation and these sorts of things, saving time? But then the second question is, what will we be talking about in five years or 10 years? You don't have a crystal ball, but thinking about what you're seeing in AI, thinking about you know where will the defender spend their time, right? So that's a little bit harder. We'll get to that one. Let's go back. If you're a CISO looking for a service or a capability or creating it, automation, what are the things that you shouldn't want your people wasting their time on? You need to automate stuff. Where do people waste their time the most? Yeah, long gone are the times where you have a analyst sitting in a back room, trotting through a lot of logs and trying to find that needle in a haystack, where if you set variables with a regex command and a lot of the sim tools and xdr tools out there and uaba tools using entity behavior analytic tools out there is looking for a variance to the norm and if you could set that and it's a set and forget and it just raise alarms immediately you save so much effort of i remember many moons ago and i'm talking about 15 16 maybe 18 years ago, when I started working on the first SIM platforms, and it was so manual. Everything you had to set was manual and a lot of effort. You needed an analyst permanent to sit there trolling through log files. And if you could say, for example, that effort by automation, at least you gain a position, basically. It's a full FTE. So you save money, basically, as an organization that delivers services to companies. And companies that buys these services from you would probably appreciate that because they know that, look, it's set, it will pick up anything, there won't be any human error involved, and the monthly report I get will be very, very accurate. It will give me the abnormal to the norm. I think that that's often misunderstood. I think many non-technical leaders probably don't understand something you just said. And I, I really do think this is important. So no matter what you buy, focusing on where your staff would waste their time, or the thing I would say is, what wouldn't you get any credit for? No one's going to give you 
a promotion or a raise because you sorted through a bunch of log files. They don't care. No one gives a damn. And you mentioned also, if even if it was 18 years ago when I talked to you or talking to an analyst today, going through and trying to figure out what's abnormal, so not just a, a fact-based alert or a signature-based alert, but in terms of behavior, an example I'll give, maybe you have a thought on this, anytime there's an outage call or an incident response scenario, one of the questions that always comes up is, is this normal? You know, does Peter typically sign into this server? Has Peter ever signed into this server or website? Or does Peter typically upload files to this location? Or, you know, these sorts of questions. And then it becomes even more powerful if you can take that understanding what Peter normally does, normal, and then comparing it to the abnormal and then chaining that together with any other observations, such as. What if you could look at lateral movement? What if you could look at, you know, pulling in other sorts of, you know, alerts from someplace like CrowdStrike or whatever the thing is, you know, whatever the endpoint is, whatever the endpoint tool, you know, red blinky thing. So there's a lot of power there. But the, the thing for the analyst is it's almost impossible to answer that manually. Like if you had to go through and say, well, now I've got to run a query to say, you know, show me all logins from Steve to this particular server. It's necessary. You have to answer it, but it's a colossal waste of time. Like, so to have somebody who can pre-compute that is very important. Again, buy whatever you like. But if I'm a CISO and I'm not technical, I may not know that I need that. Abnormal may not be wrong. So abnormal can be, and I like this word, and, and a friend of mine that I made friends with due to an organization that got exposed by a cyber threat actor said one word, convenience. So due to convenience, and sometimes we use convenience, the fact of convenience, for example, I'll just upload something from a mainframe to my local desktop, and I'll go to airport and connect to a network there, and all of a sudden, all my customer database has been exposed. But my mainframe is not compromised, but my workstation and my customers are compromised. So due to the, the fact of convenience, that is a very difficult one to pick up. But sometimes abnormal is convenience as well. So it's not only a malicious act. It can be something that is someone thinks is normal. Absolutely. I think that that is a, a great distinction and that just because it's abnormal doesn't necessarily mean that it's dangerous or wrong or an attack. It could mean someone is just, you know, they're well-meaning and they're trying to get their job done and, and it just is strange. Um, you know, yeah, that's an excellent point. And sometimes you have to research it and it's sort of a, you know, it's some would call it a false positive, but I would argue against that notion because would you rather be ignorant to it and not know that it happened at all? And then you're sort of blind to the issue that it occurred, that abnormality, or would you like to know that abnormality and maybe even have some method to sort of pair? Is it abnormal and did I see something else, right? Is it abnormal and I saw some other type of violation or issue? It just adds greater context to all the work we got to do. Definitely. Absolutely. And this is where the automation, the help us as well, getting that abnormalities recorded. But that's not the only part that I do. You asked me before my career, how I started off and how I grow my career. NEC employed me 
as we won a major contract in South Australia. And we started off a, they wanted me to build a capability of engineers, manage firewalls, manage systems and so on, and a bit of cybersecurity. And today, my entire team construct out of a national team of engineering, governance, risk compliance team, and cybersecurity. Now, cybersecurity is one component of my entire team that we deliver for our internal network and for our customers. Liaising with NEC Global and my global organization are not that much different in technology and strategy overall. Okay, so you have, I would say that you have a difficult and maybe a a more unique, certainly, position because many CISOs are, security people in general, are are kind of doing one or the other. Either they're, they're defending their internal network or they're doing service delivery. Right. You're kind of doing one typically is what you what you would see uh, security teams, at least here in the States. I would say your position is a little bit unique and it, it comes with opportunity, I would say. But it also is a balancing act. Right. You're graded very harshly, I think, of if you're providing a solution to a, an outside customer. Right. They're going to let you know very quickly, sometimes faster than your internal customers. Correct. Yeah. And the biggest challenge in my life is I'm a technical person and for me to give up my technical capability to become a manager, become a CISO, basically, it was really a tough decision. But I needed to trust my employees and always say, my employees make me look good. And if I allow them and I trust them to do and expand their knowledge, then I know it will eventually come and filter up through the food chain, basically. And all my engineers are, are well-skilled and well-trained. I invest quite a bit in training, vendor training for them. Like I said, when I employ people, you don't always have the right skills at the right time. Even with a uni grad, you have to train them and invest in your people to get the best out of them. And for NEC, luckily, we've always done the good thing. We've got good partnership with all our vendors and suppliers to be able to deliver such service. You mentioned there's a, a tough a tough decision. And I think a lot of people face this in our career field. And the example, you know, I came up as a, as a technician myself, was an engineer, uh, architect, uh, intrusion analyst, and then went into leadership and helped, you know, built security operations centers and those capabilities around them. And then, you know, going into leadership, though, you give away the, the technical or give away pieces of it. It's very clear from our earlier conversation in this one that you're you really enjoy being technical, but you can't keep that. You know, you you were a little bit rare that you came up through what I'll call the the SOC or the service delivery side, and then added CISO. You know, there wasn't a CISO you know in in, in your position uh, in the country affiliate before, so you're you're the first one. So my question to you is, what did you have to add? mentally is a skill set. So rather than a technical skill, what did you have to add? I guess it could still be technical, but it's just not technical like firewall technical. It's leadership technical. What did you have to add moving from service delivery, service capability creation to CISO? And what did you add and what was the most difficult if there was one? So around about 20 years ago, I've had my first assessment service up at in Kenya. So, and that's a lovely country. If you ever have the opportunity, do go and visit Kenya. 
as the airplane came in, you just saw giraffe on your left and the elephants on the right. It is just, it is as it is in Nairobi. So, but it is a very, very pretty country. But irrespective of that, I had to do an ISO assessment in Kenya. And then my company sent me to do another ISO assessment and basically ISO 27001. I didn't think much of it at the time. And then I started enjoying writing documentation policies, procedures, and doing the physical assessment, doing the logical assessment of environment. So asking those questions around, especially around ISO 27001, like I said, and that's how my career progressed into the governance space. And I've ended up being a governance advisor for one of the governments in Australia and for a couple of years and assisting them with compliance and especially frameworks, their frameworks, and then moved into management and then into that size. So that, I think, what helped was getting that governance mindset in perspective for example, a CISO should think about people, processes, technology, and business. Those are the big ones. So you need to think bigger than just technical. You need to think bigger than just policies and frameworks because a framework can help you only so much, but the technical aspect of it is also complementing it. People, processes, documentation, policies, regular testing of those policies, updating of policies, because that's quite a thing that often gets lagged is people set their policies and just get lagged. Sorry, I'm off topic there, but that's just what I am, how I've progressed through my career. And I don't mind the governance part. It is actually very good because that's a big part of the size of role. Aside from budgets, obviously, budget is also a part of it, but it's always hard to ask for money. That was one of the things I had to, so I was, I was never CISO but had to run a pretty large organization and was often pulled into CISO activities. I'll put it that way. And what's interesting is how much effort, and this is what I was ignorant to prior. Many of the listeners are going to laugh at this, but just how difficult it is to, as you mentioned, to ask for money, to justify the spend. And then to remind everyone that they made the right choice giving you money and sort of showing success as a result of that investment and articulating the creation of the capability to other groups and helping them with that, selling it to other groups. You know, there's an internal sales process. You know, that's one lesson, I think, for all vendors. Everybody thinks that the relationship is from the CISO to the vendor, the vendor selling to the CISO. What many vendors and salespeople don't understand, your CISO or your manager or director, they are your inside salesperson. They've got to figure out then how to sell it. There's a case, even if they want to buy it, whatever it is, they still have to convince everyone internally. And that's a big, big thing. And I wasn't ready for that. I had to learn very quickly. But that's something I think I had to figure out because before, you know, I would just write up a technical reason for something, not sort of the business justification. So I don't know if you if you found something similar or maybe maybe it wasn't an issue. But that for me was always uh, was sort of a kind of slapped me in the face. Yeah. Look, if you have a proper strategy in place and you could have a and you build out your business case for a budget and you know exactly what your organization and this is where I say. The longer you stay with the organization, the better you know the organization, obviously. So if, you, if you're if with an organization for six months and you try to set a strategy, 
it's going to be a tough ask. You, you probably get it 80, 90% right. But if you set that strategy and it's perfectly right, you have a budget. One thing I've learned is you need to spend your budget. Do not try and save money and cost. If you've got a budget and you've got a plan, you need to spend that budget. And the reason I'm saying that is, is because if you have a proper strategy in place and you don't spend that budget, that means your strategy has not been implemented. Now, a lot of people will probably disagree with me because you save cost to the company. But we all know that security budgets are always a small part of our IT budget and still continues to be so. On average, it's about 10%, 12%, 14% maybe. In some countries, it's about 22%. I've seen reports, but it's always a small part. So what I could recommend is, is get a proper strategy and spend your budget. I will say sometimes that it is, it's sometimes hard to spend it fast enough. Sometimes you can ask for it. I've, I've seen it where there's troubles where you've got the budget, you've got the approval, but then you're, and this gets into relationship building and, and into your strategy that you're mentioning, but you get your money, you get your $500,000 to spend, whatever that is, and you can't spend all of it fast enough because you still need the cooperation of another area. Meaning, you know, you don't own all the devices, you don't own all the networks, you need to get other people to test it and to put it into the testing cycle and evaluate and whatever that is, right? Because there's some sort of impact. So I, I see people trip up there often, but your point's well made. You, know, you don't want to, that was always a big thing. You don't want to have leftover money. And you're right, Steve, uh, you're right there. Look, the hardest part is to work with those other towers and support structures that you don't have control over. Although you set the strategy and you work with executives, but you sometimes struggle to get people to do it, resources. And that's the biggest challenge. And normally a sizer doesn't have many reports into them. They generally don't have any reports. It's generally a one-man job in most organizations. But it is changing because I've seen more sizers having direct reports, more around the governance, and some of them even have socks underneath them. So it is starting to become a, a proper C role. It's, I mean, I'll, you mentioned the sock. That's very common here in the States. I mean, that's what, that was my prior role of my last title was staff vice president, you know, cybersecurity analytics, which was own the sock and many other elements. And that, that reported was a direct to the CISO and that capability, you know, had, it was IR, it was sock operations, there was adversary simulation, the engineering content creation, all that stuff was, was under there. So that's, that I'm seeing that becoming much more common rather than the SOC reporting up through some other area, uh, you know, typically IT. But yeah, that's, I got a couple other questions. We're, we're almost out of time, but there's, there's something I've been asking and I meant to ask you earlier. It's kind of a mentoring question in disguise, but Peter, you've done a lot of different things. You've lived a lot of places. You've been a, a loyal employee several places. What advice would you have given your younger self looking back at your career? doing a lot of different things. What advice would you give to young Peter, you know, coming out of, you know, school and going into the technical world? What should you have worried less about? And what advice would you have to yourself? Well, that's a good question. It is a difficult question. But if I look back at my career, I probably wouldn't have changed much. I always had the attitude of I can do it and I'll be the best. I've actually been one of the first ever checkpoint system engineers for product checkpoint. I don't know if you know the product, but yeah, and qualify yourself as much as you can. Get yourself certifications and don't wait for a company to send you on training. 
do it yourself. There's a lot of self-help um, training out there. I would have done, and, and that's what I've done. I've done a lot of self-studying and I've challenged myself to take on anything. For example, when a project, one of my South African roles in a company called Business Connection, another great company that I work for, had every time there's a project coming up, and this is how I got into the GRC stuff, is that we want a deal. We've got no one to deliver that. And I said, well, I'll, I'll do it without even thinking of it, what the consequences is. Just take on the challenge and don't stagnate. Don't just do only firewalls or SOC analyst stuff, unless it's your passion and you've got a clear career progression through SOC analyst. But some people are the type of person. So you get a couple of people that generally the one that is very motivated, that wants to move as a career progression and wants to move up in life and see that. Or, and the other one that is sitting and is very happy with his current role. And that's okay as well, because you do need those people. For example, you get a SOC analyst, and he'll be a SOC analyst his entire life. And there's nothing wrong with that, because that's his passion. And he loves threat hunting, and so on. But everyone should learn, and people should learn new stuff all the time. Because what's the point? You brought up a couple of really good points there, and we're, we're getting tight on time. But this, I think, is worth saying again sort of owning your own education. It's funny, that's been the theme of today. I just had a conversation earlier about that, of don't wait for your company to sort of lead your knowledge and your education. You know, go do it on your own. I, you know, I've, I've paid for a lot of my own training out of pocket because it was what I wanted to do. And it also kept me focused and forced me to not waste my free time. You know, you're sort of spending your free time on learning, right? So you're moving a bit faster. And, and that's, extremely important. And then the other thing I took from your statement that I just wrote down is, had you not volunteered, you know, it seemed like you had no experience in this to say, hey, we need someone to go do this GRC work. Well, 20 years later, that GRC experience, because you've had that and you have that familiarity and you've made those work products and you've had that line of thinking, that understanding is it transfers over into the position that you're doing today. You have sort of the background in that, and you, but you didn't know it at the time. You didn't know that one day you'd be a CISO or a security leader, and, and it would be helpful to have that. You just sort of blindly did it because it was something different and maybe a little bit scary, maybe a little bit something different to do. And so it's funny how life works out that way. For my take, for my, I mean, it's, it's funny how it all kind of goes full circle. Yeah, in some of the circumstances, you just don't have control of it. But um, yeah, you never, like I said, you don't have a crystal ball. You could plan for the future, but sometimes life has different expectations of you. I, I love it. I, I like the training piece. Peter, we're at time. I've got one more question that I ask every guest pursuant to the name of our show, which is the new CISO. Peter, what does being a new CISO mean to you? So a very good question. And I've been thinking about that one for some time listening to other podcasts and how you end them. For me, the size of, like I said, is reasonably the newest of the C roles, okay? So it may be 20 years old or so, but it's always been a role that's on its own and has no reporting to it. But the function of a size of then and now is still the same, where, for example, you support the business and business structure and also people identities, online identities. So that's Part of the biggest challenge of a CISO is to make sure that security is in line with the business objectives. But it is now moving more towards an online presence where we 
have more cyber threats and attack is more regular to organizations. So you need to plan better and faster. Uh, your strategy needs to change very, very quickly. And you need to be able to ask for budgets. You need to be asked for money much faster than previously. Because if you don't see attacks into your organization or to your organization's external network or cloud-based network and cloud endpoints, because we do work remotely, is becoming more part of the attack surface. So budget for and plan for proper budgets and strategy. And you need to be able to adapt much faster these days. I think that you, you said something very good there, that the speed of everything is increasing, but also you have to be able to fold your request in, not just with the attack, but also with sort of the, the movers of the business as well. So it can't be just for security's sake. That's kind of what I took from that as well. Peter, I, I can't thank you enough for making time for us. It's a very early morning in Australia for you. Thanks again so much for making time for us today. Thank you, Steve. That is it for this episode of the new CISO. Thank you for listening. Check out more episodes on xbeam.com forward slash podcast. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to get brand new episodes first.